if machines have goals, we should call them something else. We should call them creatures, shouldn't we? We should call them something. We can't call them machines or artifacts. Maybe we can. We do. We know they already have goals. We talk about computers and machines having goals all the time, and we don't call them creatures because that's a word for something else, but we might uh, change our minds about that someday. Hopefully not soon. Hopefully not today. All right, so I realized during the, or after the, the, the last segment on, the segment on goals, um, that I sort of alluded to and skipped over some things that have been said about superintelligence and, you know, AI, like really far future AI and all that stuff. So I'm not, I'm not going to skip over it this time. I'm going to go just, let's just glance at that stuff quickly and establish a shared set of ideas. It's not, this isn't comprehensive. This is just a list. I just pulled it together in a day. You could choose a different list. I'm not going to mention Kurzweil or Minsky or Vinge, but I'm going to mention, uh, read, read from others who are, you know, on that level. Because it's not, what's common knowledge? What's common knowledge is what the low-hanging fruit that makes it into electronic media. And of course, I'm speaking on a podcast. I know this is electronic media. Okay, so uh, this 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 podcast and company included, the low-hanging fruit makes it into electronic media because it's hard to make electronic media and you can't add on top of electronic media a bunch of homework. The the closest you can come to people doing their homework is good quality documentaries. And sometimes those are great and sometimes they're boring. And 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 sort of gratuitous or superfluous or whatever you want, whatever us you want to put on it uh, that says this didn't need to be done or this particular part of this didn't need to be done. You know, you're going, you're doing too much work and it's because they're in, they're in work mode. It's like they already figured out how to make nice, pretty pictures and what to put the camera on while they're talking about legislation. You can't put it on the legislation. You got to put it on a building, right? So that, that's all well and good, but that's low hanging fruit. What about the high altitude fruit? What does that taste like? Let's find out. Okay, I'm over-promising. I'm going to under-deliver. I'm not going to give you high-altitude fruit, okay? But I'm going to read some things that might be interesting to you if you're interested in goals and artifacts and machines and whether we're all going to be killed by robots, okay? So, um, we're uh, we're going to pick up from Herbert Simon. We quoted from him before about artifacts being a meeting point, an interface between inner and outer environments, and if they're appropriate, if the the inner environment is appropriate to the outer or vice versa, it will serve its intended purpose. And we talked about how appropriate and intended are words that we don't really, that are squishy, that are hard to grab onto, and we don't really know what they mean implicitly, although we use them. Okay. Right after that, he says this. Notice that this way of viewing artifacts applies equally well to many things that are not man-made, to all things, in fact, that can be regarded as adapted to some situation, and in particular, it applies to the living systems that have evolved through the forces of organic evolution, of organic evolution. Inner and outer environments, artifacts as interfaces, applies equally well to 
all things that are adapted to some situation. In particular, especially living systems that have evolved. And you might think, don't, haven't all living systems evolved? No. We're, we're, no. Bioengineering. No. And you don't even, you can just leave bioengineering out of it and you can still ask. I knew I was going to think of the tortoises. I didn't prepare for this. The, the tortoises, this guy, oh, I, I'm never going to remember his name. Um, his tortoises. <laughs> Let me explain. So sometime in the 40s or 50s, a tinkerer, I, I read a lot about this guy, but it was a while ago and I forgot his name, uh, made these, oh, my, can I Google it? No, I'm not going to Google it while you're on the, on the line. Uh, he made these robots that sort of seemed to be alive. They only had like light sensors and, you know, motorized wheels. And I think that's, and, and you know, some sort of simple mechanism that got them to wander a little bit until the light sensor gave them feedback. And um, Walter, that's his name, uh, Walter's Tortoises. I think that's his last name. And, um, and they started to act not like robots, like tortoises, like, like creatures, like machines. Because they would see their, their, the light coming from their, they had a light sensor and a light source on their own bodies, on their own, on them, on their, I was going to say on their persons. Look, we're, we're way ahead of schedule if I say it that way. On themselves, they had light going out and then a sensor that, that um, converted incoming light into, you know, uh, a, a voltage. And when they would get in front of a mirror or when they would, cra- you know, approach crashing into each other or a wall or something like that, um, they'd act like simple creatures would. And, and I think the light flashed in the mirror. There's a video of this online. I, don't, I didn't watch the video, though. I should have watched the video. It was a, it was a while ago. I was busy. Uh, they, you flash the light on and then the light bounces off the mirror, goes to the light sensor, and then the, that triggers the tortoise to turn off its light. And... Walter, Sir Walter, was it? Um, uh, Gray Walter, that's his name, Sir Gray. I didn't search it. It just came to it. See, your memory is a magical thing. It's in there somewhere. It just, you might have to force people to listen to you dig for it, which is not fun. Uh, Sir, Sir Gray Walter's tortoises, search that. I'll put a link to it in the show. And, uh, and, and the, the light would flicker, and he said that this, this you could argue this is self-awareness. Look, it's looking in the mirror at itself. It knows that it's there. It knows. That's in big quotes, right? But we talked in segment one of Retrace about, well, how do you describe artificial intelligence? It's like, well, well whatever it is to, well, whatever it is that makes some machines and some computers seem to know things or to act like they know things, knowing it's knowing. Does the tortoise know anything when it looks in the mirror? Probably not. Not by your by your thinking, right? Right? Maybe. I don't know. I'm on the fence about it. Okay. Creatures, right? So Simon says, Simon says, that's never going to stop being a little chuckle in my mind. Simon says that uh, this artifact as interface, interface thing applies to living creatures. And um, I said, you know, evolution doesn't just, it doesn't, you know, not all biology has evolved anymore because we're starting to create synthetic or artificial life. And, but then you, you don't even need that. You just need 
you know, Sir Gray Walter's tortoises to make to prove the point that that there's um there's a there's a break in evolution. Okay, we'll leave it at that. We're not going to talk about evolution. It's huge. We're not talking about that. Uh, although it is an overtone of everything we're going to talk about today. All right. Next up is um, uh, the Darwin Among the Machines by. He didn't sign his name as, um, oh, jeez, Samuel Butler. I, why does I keep drawing a blank on that? He didn't sign his, sign his name as Samuel Butler. He signed his name as Solarius because he was being 19th, cent, 19th century-ish. Okay. He wrote, uh, he was in New Zealand at the time. He wrote to a publication called The Press. This essay, Darwin Among the Machines, which we know about because... George Dyson wrote a book by the same title, inspired by the essay that we will get to, and in that essay he says wonderful thought-provoking things, and the fact that they come from the mid-19th century um, is makes it all the more heavy to read, And but then he sort of wraps it up with a few things that we should hear. The fact is that our interests are inseparable from theirs, and theirs from ours. Each race is dependent upon the other for innumerable benefits, and, until the reproductive organs of the machines have been developed in a manner which we are hardly yet able to conceive, they are entirely dependent upon man for even the continuance of their species. It is true that machinery is even at this present time employed in begetting machinery, in becoming the parent of machines, often after its own kind. But the days of flirtation, courtship, and matrimony appear to be very remote, and indeed can hardly be realized by our feeble and imperfect imagination. He says our imagination. He refers to himself as our, or he, you know, he says we and our. I sometimes do that, but I try to say we when I mean we, and I when I mean I. Butler continues. Day by day, however, the machines are gaining ground upon us. Day by day, we are becoming more subservient to them. More men are daily bound down as slaves to tend them. More men are daily devoting the energies of their whole lives to the development of mechanical life. Sound familiar? The upshot is simply a question of time, but that the time will come when the machines will hold the real supremacy over the world and its inhabitants is what no person of a truly philosophic mind can for a moment question. Our opinion is that war to the death should be instantly proclaimed against them. Solarius, getting intense. All right. Um, credit where credit is due. We know about the Darwin Among the Machines essay by Solarius. Samuel Butler. Did I say William Butler? Samuel Butler. Um, because of George Dyson, the son of Freeman Dyson and the, let's say, historian of science and boat builder. So he... Sorry, I'm just... Having a technical issue. All right. Uh, so he tells a little story at the front of his book, Darwin Among the Machines, The Evolution of Global Intelligence. 1997, by the way, if you're a fan of the machine apocalypse, you will 
know about Ray Kurzweil, and maybe you'll know about Nick Bostrom, and maybe you'll know about Eliezer Yudkowsky, but you you have to do a little bit of digging to know about Dyson, and then more, just a slightly more digging to know about Butler. 1997, George Dyson tells this little story that rams home the point. My daughter Lauren had just turned five in 1994 when we watched a videotape describing Thomas Ray's digital organisms, self-reproducing numbers that had enraptured their creator by evolving new species and new patterns of behavior overnight. Ray was speaking at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, where 40 years earlier the first experiments at evolving numerical organisms were performed. Ray's Tieran creatures inhabit a landscape entirely foreign to our own. Their expanding digital universe was first wrested into existence out of the realm of pure mathematics by the glow of 2,600 vacuum tubes that flickered briefly at the dawn of digital programming in a low brick building at the foot of Olden Lane. Tom Ray and his portable universe now stood on on ancestral ground. This is Tom Ray and his imaginary creatures, I said, explaining what we were watching partway through the tape. But Dad my daughter said. They're not imaginary. She was right. I misread that last line. I'm sorry. It said, but dad, my daughter corrected. They're not imaginary. She's right. That's what it said. I don't want to misread it. I did misread it and I don't want to. Okay. They're not imaginary. They're not imaginary. They're not imaginary in 1994, did he say? To a five-year-old or a four-year-old, they're not. Five? Four? Five. Okay, but they still feel imaginary today. Or we're still not... Okay, I'm going to skip... I'm going to rearrange my little pile here. Because the point is, they even if we all agree that they're not imaginary, that there are... Have you, have you ever heard of um, Stephen Wolfram's book... A new kind of science. I'm, I'm not. I can't go into it, but it's it's like 2002 and crazy stuff he does with his um, cellular automata computer programs, and he illustrates it beautifully. And crazy patterns emerge from very simple rules. That's the point of the whole book. I'm sure he achieves magnificent intellectual feats beyond that that I didn't quite retain. Uh, but but that's the point. Um, okay, so we can all agree that those self-reproducing automata in Wolfram's programs or in in uh, this guy, what was his name? Thomas Ray, Tom Ray's, you know, imaginary universe creature, number creatures. Uh, yeah, they're doing whatever they're doing and it's interesting. And okay, fine. Well, what does that mean? I mean, if, if Samuel Butler had seen this stuff, He's reacting to a like a, a steamship. I mean, <laughs> that's what he, Samuel Butler's in his essay is invoking the largest steamship at the time uh, to point out how crazy it is what machines can do. It's a boat with heat in it. We're talking about computers that behave at least in their standard output on the on the display like like there are creatures inside them. In addition to heat, our right, well, Eliezer Yudkowsky says there's no fire alarm for artificial general intelligence. No fire alarm. That's the title of his essay, 
2017 it says. I thought it was older than that, but okay. And just to, to, to make the point about fire alarms, he says this, a fire alarm creates common knowledge in the you know, I know sense that there is a fire, after which it is socially safe to react. When the fire alarm goes off, you know that everyone else knows there is a fire. You know you won't lose face if you proceed to exit the building. The fire alarm doesn't tell us with certainty that a fire is there. In fact, I can't recall one time in my life when exiting a building on a fire alarm, there was an actual fire. Really, a fire alarm is weaker evidence of fire than smoke coming from under a door. But the fire alarm tells us that it's socially, that it's socially okay to react to the fire. It promises us with certainty that we won't be embarrassed if we now proceed to exit in an orderly fashion. What would be the fire alarm for artificial general intelligence? It can't be the fire. It can't be the smoke. It's too late. If, this, if the smoke is under the door, with artificial general, with super intelligence, with whatever you want to call it, it's too late. It's not like a fire. It's much faster. That's the point. It's an intelligence explosion. Where did that term come from? I have it right here. Irving John Good, the mathematician, in 65 or 66, different, different citations say one or the other date. Let's say 60, I'm putting it as 65. I think it's 65. 1965, um, an essay, The First Ultra-Intelligent Machine, and in that essay, this is, this passage gets quoted all over the place. Uh, he says this, Let an ultra-intelligent machine be defined as a machine that can far surpass all the intellectual activities of any man, however clever. Since the design of machines is one of these intellectual activities, an ultra-intelligent machine could design ever better machines. There would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion, and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man need ever make, provided that the machine is docile enough to tell us how to keep it under control. It is curious that this point is made so seldom outside of science fiction. It is sometimes worthwhile to take science fiction seriously. Intelligence explosion. I've read that the, the general debate after this particular essay has always been about the, the word unquestionably. He says there would un, then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion. It's probably a debate worth having, especially when the most advanced machines are Steamships or DOS programs are the visual equivalent. But if we're having it today, does it make sense? Unquestionably? I'm not going to argue with Irving Good about the intelligence explosion. I'm only going to argue about whether or not it is definitely going to happen. Really? You can't approach dangerous stuff like that, can you? I don't think you can. All right, um... What are we talking about? Intelligence. We've t the point of departure for retrace is the concept of intelligence. We spent a week on strategic intelligence. This week we're on artificial intelligence. Next week we'll be on natural intelligence, and then we'll go free. Put some constraints in the beginning, and then we go free. Not free from intelligence, but free to go where it takes us. What do we mean by intelligence? 
Now, that a lot of work has been done on this, especially recent work, especially work by engineers at the most famous uh, artificial intelligence company in the world, DeepMind, which is now part of Google, Shane Legg and, and Hutter, I forget Hutter's first name. Um, anyway, work's been done uh, on, on it in, from a technical point of view, and it's interesting work. And a bit beyond my intellectual reach, I'll be honest, I just have to spend more time thinking about the equations than they do. You know, they write the equations and I have to think, I have to try and figure out like, what does this notation mean again? I don't, I never, I didn't learn this one. And that takes, so we'll get to that later. We'll, we'll, when, when the time comes, let's go there. For now, let's use a more friendly definition from Eliezer Yudkowsky, who is good at making things friendly, but worried about things not being friendly, machines not being friendly. He says this, for purposes of posing the question of the intelligence explosion, we may be better off with intelligent. Now he's quoting, but in quotes, we may may be better off with intelligence is that sort of smartish stuff coming out of brains, which can play chess and price bonds and persuade people to buy bonds and invent guns and figure out gravity by looking at wandering lights in the sky, and which, if a machine intelligence had it in large quantities, might let it invent molecular nanotechnology, and so on. To frame it another way, if something is powerful enough to build a Dyson sphere, it doesn't really matter very much whether we call it intelligent or not. A Dyson sphere is a sort of flying panels around a star to capture all the energy, the solar energy, so that it's not... It doesn't go out into space, and, and then it can be used by a, technolo- a technology-faring civilization. Um, and this is just the sort of intelligence we're interested in, something powerful enough that whether or not we define it as intelligence is moot. Okay. Smartish stuff, and we know we're focusing correctly if we come across Dyson Spheres. Okay. Let's reel it in a little bit. And talk to the professionals. We've been talking to professionals. I mean, Good was a mathematician. Herbert Simon was an AI pioneer. George Dyson is a famed historian. Yudkowsky is sort of a prodigy. He's hard to pin down. He's hard to... I don't know if he's a prodigy or not, but, you know, he's he's sort of a brilliant uh, free spirit. And he works... He fundraises for an organization called MIRI... Uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, and then when he's done fundraising, he leads the people with that money. He leads people to try and solve these AI safety problems, and he's he's fun to listen to. If not read the, the intelligence explosion, microeconomics is uh, you're gonna you're gonna need two cups of coffee for that one, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Okay, so those we've done some sort of professional treatment from outside the, 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 the field, except for Simon. He was sort of inside and outside. He was an economist, and he also wrote AI programs, as you do. Uh, well, there's, there's one go-to person that we can rely on to get the right answer to this, I think. Um, in, all, in all scenarios? I don't know. But in, in scenario, I mean, look, I like him. And I like the way he thinks, and I and he's being honest, and he's not shying away from controversy, but he's also not courting it. Okay, Stuart Russell, um, with Peter Norvig, uh, wrote have written for the last twenty. The first one was nineteen ninety five. The last twenty five years, the standard textbook on artificial intelligence. There were many before this book, and now there are a few. And this book is in its fourth edition, and it's beautiful. Um, 
and they write about AI safety in the last or almost last chapter. And they say a few things like this. Almost any technology has the potential to cause harm in the wrong hands. But with AI and robotics, the hands might be operating on their own. That doesn't sound good. They continue. We can hope that a robot that is smart enough to figure out how to terminate the human race is also smart enough to figure out that that was not the intended utility function. But in building intelligent systems, we want to rely not just on hope, but on a design process that guarantees, with guarantees of safety. We'll get into utility functions at another time, but just think of them as sort of the goal or goal structure or motivation of the machines. They continue, Russell and Norvig, after talking about ultra-intelligent machines and the technological singularity. If you don't know, the technolo technological singularity, let's say there are, there are two ways of thinking about it. One, it's when uh, technology goes so fast that you have to upgrade yourself just to keep up with society. Or two, technology goes so fast that you, we just can't predict anymore beyond a certain event horizon. There might be a third way. That's most of it right there, those two ideas. So when you hear singularity, you think that. Now, you might have already heard singularity, and you might be thinking, chips in our brains, living forever, all that stuff. No, no, no. You, you don't go too far. You're reading too much Kurzweil. You've got to just focus on the, the point where the, the word comes into play, because if you, if you start looking at all the dreams, it's distracting. But don't worry. Everybody does it. Okay. Anyway, Russell and Norvig continue. Um, while some people fear the singularity, others relish it. The transhumanism social movement looks forward to a future in which humans are merged with or replaced by robotic and biotech inventions. Looks forward to both? Can't, can't they look forward to one replaced by? And, well, what about that? I said we weren't going to draw from uh, Marvin Minsky here, but, but uh, Russell and Norvig do quickly. They say this on the same page. Similarly, when asked whether robots will inherit the earth, Marvin Minsky said, yes, but they will be our children. These possibilities present a challenge for most moral theorists who take the preservation of human life and the human species to be a good thing. Gotta love Russell and Norvig. I'm not saying that sarcastically. I really do. I have all four editions of this book, and I love them. Um, I've just got to move it out of my way because it's large. Okay. Uh, Stuart Russell, on his own, not writing with Norvig, but writing a popular book called Human Compatible recently. Uh, I don't know what illustrated the point, rammed the point home. I don't know what he's doing here. He's doing something with this point. He says this. To get just an inkling of the fire we're playing with, Consider how content selection algorithms function on social media. They aren't particularly intelligent, but they are in a position to affect the entire world because they directly influence billions of people. Typically, such algorithms are designed to maximize click-through, that is, the probability that the user clicks on presented items. The solution is simply to present items that the user likes to click on, right? wrong. The solution is to change the user's preferences so that they become more predictable. 
A more predictable user can be fed items that they are likely to click on, thereby generating more revenue. People with more extreme political views tend to be more predictable in which items they will click on. Possibly there is a category of articles that diehard centrists are likely to click on, but it's not not easy to imagine what this category consists of. Like any rational entity, the algorithm learns how to modify the state of its environment, in this case, the user's mind, in order to maximize its own reward. Are you still there? Your mind is the environment of these things. Did you know that? I didn't know that when I heard it the first time. Ooh, okay. Uh, I just I wanted, I tried to shake my head to get something out of it. That's, that's not going to work. All right, so back to uh, George Dyson in a book edited by John Brockman. He says that we shouldn't worry about intelligence. He doesn't say that we shouldn't worry about it. He says that we shouldn't worry about it as much as we should worry about other things. We worry too much about machine intelligence and not enough about self-reproduction, communication, and control. The next revolution in computing will be signaled by the rise of analog systems over which digital programming no longer has control. Nature's response to those who believe they can build machines to control everything will be to allow them to build a machine that controls them instead. We talked about control in the first series, the Dulles series on strategic intelligence. Check it out. It, what, I mean, I'm saying that because it's a complicated thing. You think you know what control is, and you don't. You, you don't. It's the test of power in Weizenbaum's definition, but it's, it's complicated. I mean, what's power? But anyway. All right, so we're on our way. Let's wrap it up. Gerald Smallberg, neurologist writing in another book edited by Brockman. My experience as a clinical neurologist leads me to believe that we'll be unable to read machines' thoughts, but also they'll be incapable of reading ours. There will be no shared theory of mind. I suspect the closest we can come to knowing this most complex of states is indirectly by studying the behavior of these superintelligent machines. The behavior. They will have crossed that threshold when they start replicating and looking for an energy source solely under their control. Replicating? And you might think the other thing was energy source, but really it's the looking. Remember, in in the beginning of Retrace, we talked about machines and computers that seem to know things act like they know things as some sort of loose definition of artificial intelligence. So, Smallberg points out that if they're looking for an energy source, we should be concerned. And we would point out at Retrace that if they're looking for anything, we should be concerned. 
If, if they're doing anything that we could describe as looking for something, I mean, I know that Google is a search engine. It's a search super machine, okay? And I know that when I'm flipping through, as I was doing today, hundreds and hundreds of papers and dozens and dozens of books looking for something that's in my memory, but that is not clearly located in the place in my quarters where I thought it was, I do see the value of digital content. I'm making it right now. It's way better to search a Kindle book for something you remember than it is a paper book, especially if you haven't, if it's a library book and you couldn't write in it and so you have to, there's no markings on the pages and no nothing anywhere. Okay, yes, search is good, but looking for is different, right? We can't use that phrase interchangeably with search. So much of what we'll talk about when we talk about AI this week and then in, in the weeks and years to come, hopefully years to come, is search, this central concept in computer science, search. Okay, search is not looking for, right? We can't, that English word can't mean looking for. Maybe it does, maybe there's no way. Is an aardvark searching for whatever it's searching, answer whatever they search for? Or is it looking for them? I mean, when you're scanning something on your screen, a, a, an article or a feed, a social media feed that's modifying your mind because that's its environment, when you're looking, are you looking for something on the feed or are you searching or are you scanning? I don't know. Maybe scanning is the thing we have in common. Looking for an energy source solely under their control. Replicating and looking for an energy source solely under their control. Not good. Except to the cosmists. Do you know about the cosmists? We talked about them recently. I think it was the last segment. segment. Uh, cosmists, they wouldn't mind that. These developments. Okay. Um, so that's Smallberg in the same volume. Uh, edited by Brockman, we have Diederich, Thomas Diederich, uh, computer scientist, um, carrying on the point. So he's talking about, um, well, the title of his essay is How to Prevent an Intelligence Explosion, and he's talking about the four steps that would or could or might lead to an intelligence explosion. Step number one is that a machine or an intelligence could conduct experiments on the world. Uh, step number two is that it could discover new and simplifying structures um, that could be exploited. Step number three is that it could uh, design and implement uh, new mechanisms to exploit uh, what it's discovered. And then he says this. The first three steps pose no danger of an intelligence chain reaction. It's the fourth step, reproduction with autonomy. And he says... Uh, to, to grant autonomy and resources to these new computing me mechanisms so they can recursively perform experiments, um, the system would have to be able to do that uh, as the fourth step. So reproduction with autonomy that is dangerous. Of course, virtually all offspring in step four will fail, just as virtually all new devices and new software don't work the first time. But with sufficient iteration, or equivalently, sufficient reproduction with variation, we can't rule out the possibility of an intelligence explosion. Reproduction and autonomy. Or replication 
and the search for an energy source under your control. You choose the phrase. Okay, so uh, that's all well and good. This is all troubling and fascinating. And as Sam Harris pointed out in his um, TED Talk, uh, Death by Science Fiction is fun for some reason. Um, okay, well, what do we do about it? What's the work? We can, we can sip on these ideas all day long and achieve nothing and be more vulnerable or more anxious or, 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 or more successful because we're not being bogged down by this thing that we can't do anything, perhaps we can't do anything about and it's going to get us, so let's just live while we still can. Okay, that's one approach. But let's not take that one. We're going to just drop one little sort of perspective on the work before we wrap up. We're not going to go deep into the work because that's, that's an entirely uh, – entire, a topic entirely unto itself. And, and it's, um, it's going to make this segment run longer. Okay. Nick Bostrom wrote uh, Superintelligence Paths, Dangers, Strategies. 2014, I'm reading from the 2016 edition, which has a good afterword in it, after, you know, which talks about the explosive reaction to the 2014 edition. Yudkowsky called it a sociological phenomenon. Um, okay, Bostrom's uh, talking about crunch time. And uh, <laughs> let me just tell you what crunch time, this is his opening sort of um, epigram. This is like the last chapter of the book. We find ourselves in a thicket of strategic complexity surrounded by a dense mist of uncertainty. Though many considerations have been discerned, their details and inter and interrelationships remain unclear and iffy, and there might be other factors we have not yet even thought of. We have not even thought of yet. What are we to do in this predicament? Okay, and then he goes, he's got philosophy on a deadline, he's got um, building good capacity, uh, strategic, uh, strategic analysis, and other particular measures as, as things that you can do. But, but under philosophy with a deadline, he says this. Uh, this reflection suggests a strategy of deferred gratification. We could postpone work on some of the eternal questions for a little while. He's, he's talking about philosophy and mathematics, but it applies generally. We could postpone work on some of the eternal questions for a little while, delegating that task uh, to our hopefully more competent successors in order to focus our own attention on a more pressing challenge, increasing the chance that we will actually have competent successors. This would be high-impact philosophy and high-impact mathematics. Um, and before that, he's kind of hard on the Fields Medal winners. But... That's a different story. Deferred gratification. Great. We do that really well. And yet, our entire civilization, or, civil, or the entire group of civilizations on the planet today, um, is, is sort of screaming with evidence that we can do crazy big things. So the idea that you know, maybe deferred gratification or, you know, capacity building or strategic analysis. These are the only things, these, these are the beginnings of, of ideas that will lead to, if we're successful, 
against this thing if it's going to happen, which are all big ifs. Um, those are the beginnings of the ideas. But as easy as it is to be daunted by the task of going up against super machine creatures, if they're going to happen, if that's even a, an idea that's coherent 50 or 100 years from now, um, it could be daunting, but stand next to a skyscraper. Are you in a city right now? Statistically, I think you are. Look up. Is that daunting? You know, there's an optical illusion when we look upward at things. They, they seem much further away when we're looking upward. There's just something about, you know, the vestibular system or something goes, something happens in our brains, the environment for these social media algorithms. Something happens in our brains when we look up that makes things seem farther away. You know, if you were to look at something a hundred stories away, which is, let's say, a thousand feet on the ground, it seems a certain distance. But when you look up, it seems further away. Well, maybe these sort of big historical moments in the history of humanity, like technology certainly is, and super artificial intelligence killer machines might be, maybe those are like uh, looking up at skyscrapers. If you, if you hadn't seen one, you probably wouldn't believe that they were possible, and yet they're routine. They are routine now. So we can do it. If it needs to be done, which we don't know whether that's true. This is Retrace, signing off.